Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. If you need some earbuds or some headphones or both, Go over to tweakedaudio.com right now. Enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. That's the offer code. You enter that offer code, you get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is an attempt at communication. This is me not interviewing the president. Hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, it's Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. My guest is Ryan O'Connell. He has a new book out called I'm Special. It's a memoir. It's a manifesto. It's a very funny and heartfelt work of nonfiction available now from Simon & Schuster. Uh, Ryan happens to be gay. He has cerebral palsy. His book deals with that stuff, among other things. And uh, he and I are going to get into all of it in just a minute. Very interesting episode. So not a lot at the top of the show today. I, you know, I, not much has changed since last week. I feel like I'm in sort of a holding pattern. I'm a week, uh, I'm a week closer to becoming a father for the second time. My wife is pregnant. It's getting close. My son will be born soon. Uh, my wife has gotten even more pregnant since last week. The kid is measuring in the 98th percentile. He's a very big baby. And, and uh, my wife, Carrie, was talking to her parents recently and found out that her dad was 10 pounds at birth and her grandfather was 12 pounds. So there's a tradition of very large baby boys on her side of the family. It appears that our son is uh, following suit. I don't think they even allow 12-pound babies. I think they take them out before they get to that size. They do a cesarean or they induce. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a loaded time in my life, psycho-spiritually loaded. It's exciting. It's scary. It's exciting. I, uh, I, and, you know, I'm talking to my daughter. I have a four-year-old girl, as most of you know, 
And uh, I'm talking to her the other day, and it's starting to get real for her, too. Like, she can feel it. This is what the end stage of a pregnancy does to you, is you're moving out of the realm of abstraction and into concrete reality. And so she's starting to kind of try to wrap her little head around it. And uh, we're sitting there in the morning, and she's asking me all these questions. And she's like, uh, you know, what's he going to look like when he comes out? Is he going to look like an old man? How big is he going to be? That kind of stuff. And I'm sitting there trying to answer. And then uh, suddenly, in what seemed uh, like something of a non sequitur, she said, I don't want to get taller. And I was like, why? And she's like, because if I get taller, then I'm going to die. It was like eight in the morning. <laughs> she was eating breakfast. And uh, so, of course, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I do what I always do whenever we talk about death. I was, I tried to be calm and I was like, honey, you know, there's no such thing as death. It's an illusion. There's only the uh, changing of forms. Just like when a cloud leaves the sky and becomes rain and uh, falls to the earth and becomes flowers or becomes a river that runs out to the ocean. That's my line. I'm trying to break it down in, uh, you know, in terms that uh, a person can understand. Little or big. I actually use that on myself. <laughs> yeah, to try to calm my death terror whenever it arises. It's a, you know, it's a heavy responsibility having kids and having to try to explain death to them. And, you know, I don't know what happens. I don't think any of us do, quite. I think humility is important, right? It's good to have humility. I don't know. The universe is a uh, magnificent mystery. I just don't know all the details. But I also feel confident in what I just said. I feel confident that death really is an illusion and that there really is only a changing of forms. I really do feel that, uh, you know, matter and energy cannot be created or uh, created or destroyed. First law of thermodynamics. I've talked about this. I feel confident in that. You can't uh, create a person from nothing. You can't change something into nothing or someone into nothing. You cannot create someone from nothing. We're part of a continuum. And there's no uh, self. I believe that too. The individual self is an illusion. Death is an illusion. What I think of as Brad Listy is actually a, you know, a grand composite. I'm not some sort of finite human pod. I'm made of nothing but non-Brad elements. There's no independent Brad Listy. I'm made of 70% water, which is hydrogen and oxygen. I'm made of the food that I eat. I'm made of my parents and, and my ancestors. That seems obvious, right? That's, that's logical. And uh, so when it comes to death, trying to explain that to my kid, I feel pretty confident in that particular line of logic. But the problem is that I understand it intellectually. I can present it coherently or at least semi-coherently. 
but I don't know if I can live it in a way that translates into uh, fearlessness and deep peace. I'm working on it. But like I can be, you know, I can be like, you know, it's just a changing of forms. It's just like when a cloud disappears from the sky and becomes rain and falls to the earth and becomes flowers. And then uh, at the, in the same breath, you know, if somebody came over to my house and was like, there's a meteor coming for earth, we're all going to be dead in an hour. I'd probably freak out. <laughs> probably lose my shit. Go running into the street. I'd run out to the ocean, just wade in. I don't know what I would do, but that's me in a nutshell right now at this particular juncture. Is it possible to really have true insight and to live it? Is it possible to achieve some kind of liberation? I'd like to do that. Uh, anybody know how to do that? Anybody done that? I'd love to interview you. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Ryan O'Connell. His book is called I'm Special. It's a memoir slash manifesto, and uh, it's out there now from Simon & Schuster. I had such a good time talking with him. He came over, uh, we sat down, and we talked about a bunch of things. He's got a lot going on. He's a very talented guy, uh, very uh, energetic, ambitious artist who uh, is not only uh, writing books, he's also writing television. He's been working on the uh, MTV show Awkward for the past couple of seasons, and he's got uh, uh, you know a deal in the works to make I'm Special into his own uh, TV show. So you're going to hear about that as well. Very pleased uh, to have had the chance to sit down with Ryan, and I hope you guys enjoy this one. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, this is Ryan O'Connell. Local uh, local writer drives very short distance to get here. Exactly. That's Actually, a, I Uber. You Uber? Because I don't drive. Why not? Um, I just never learned, and I don't want to learn. What are you, like, but you're from Ventura. Yeah. So it's not like you're from New York City and you never learned. Well, yeah, but okay, so I lived in Ventura, but then I moved to San Francisco for two years, and then I moved to New York for six. Okay. And then I moved back here, and I was like, maybe I'll just never learn how to drive, and then I haven't. It's been great. Oh, my God. All right, so <laughs> you, you lived in Ventura as a child. Yeah, I grew up there, born and raised, like, since I, until, you know, then graduated high school, went away to college, and then, you know, 
Yeah, never well, what, back. What, are your, what did your folks do in Ventura? Uh, my mom was a nurse and my dad was a social worker. Okay. Yeah. It's beautiful out there. Beautiful. Yeah. Small town, nice small coastal. Middle class suburbia. It yeah. is, but it's yeah. like surfy. It's like surf town suburbia. Yeah. You know, going back there, it's so funny because my parents moved when I, my dad moved to Malibu when I was 14 because he remarried somebody. Uh, and then my mom moved up north right after I graduated high school. So I haven't really been back in like 10 years. Uh-huh. And I go back sometimes for like the day. And I, you know, it's, I have to say, there's some snobbery, I think, from living in San Francisco, New York, L.A., because I noticed that people are kind of, you know, like white trashy a little bit. In Ventura. A little bit. A little bit. The way that they dress and stuff like that. Yeah, there's a little bit of like a, well, they call it Bakersfield by the Sea. Do you know that? Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's rude, because I think that Ventura is actually really charming, and like, there's beautiful houses there, and it's just like a little slice of have. Dude, I'm from Indiana. You are? Yeah. <laughs> I'm from Milwaukee in Indiana. So Ventura is so like, Ventura is like, like, it's Rodeo Drive. Yeah. 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 I mean, no, it's just like, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's just people, yeah, they're just, they're just more go with the flow. They're beach bums. So it's not like they're going to be wearing like, you know, APC to like, well, their coffee. but I've, you know, I've lived in Los Angeles for 15 years and, uh, you know, you, Spend time in these big metropolitan areas, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, or for in your case, I guess all of the above. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it does change, you know, you, you get used to it. And yeah. then suddenly you find yourself in suburbia and, it, you know, it's a different scene. People are more relaxed about how they dress and... And wait, too, because I've noticed that everyone – that I've lived in thin cities for the last 10 years uh-huh. where I felt kind of like, you know, the plus-size Christie Alley. <laughs> you you, you go, yourself have. Well, no. I mean, I have. You know. Relatively. You're very thin. I know. Well, now – yes, yes, yes. Uh, but, you know, I wasn't always, actually. I, I lost 30 pounds last summer. You did? Mm. Uh, how did you do it? Uh, just diet and exercise. Who knew? Right. I just stopped eating. <laughs> the rumors are true. <laughs> That's how you get fixed. No, I, I was always thin. And then, you know, my weight gain story is very basic. It's like I just, uh, you know, graduated college and gained five pounds a year without noticing, really. You know, it was very subtle. It wasn't like an overnight weight gain. It was just like, and then all of a sudden you're just like, oh, I, I'm like three sizes bigger than I used to be. And like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And I never worked out a day in my life. And um, I, I just uh, finished a job on Awkward on MTV where, I was in the writer's room, so I was eating a ton of shitty food every day. Right. And I was like, I guess I should just start working out now. And I became one of those annoying people that became obsessed with it. And then became... I what, what were you doing? What kind of working out? Oh, easy. Easy, easy. Because I, like, uh, I was doing, um, you know, like elliptical. I was doing crunches. I was doing, like, planks. Just, like, nothing crazy. Because for me, it's all about things that are manageable. Like, the, the second you dip into extremes, it will all fall apart. So I just needed to do a workout that was simple, easy, cardio that I could do like six days a week without. Yeah. I, I, this is what I always say. Go walk for an hour. Yeah. Just walking. That helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't do that here. There's no, I mean like that's the thing that I do it. That's how, well, they <laughs> gold star. Oh my God. Somebody wants some credit around here. I take my dog for a walk at night sometimes. That's good. I mean, it, yeah. that's, that's kind of but like, you know, I lived in New York, which I think kept me relatively healthy just because I was walking everywhere and eating garbage food, but just walking it off. And then I moved here, got a job on awkward immediately, was in the writer's room, never walking. And I gained 10 pounds. You're Ubering everywhere. Yeah. Never step. And then I remember I would walk to the cafeteria on Paramount at Paramount studios and I would be like out of breath. By the time I got to the commissary, and I was just like, this is not good. This yeah. is a really bad thing. No, you got to take care of yourself. You got to take care of yourself. And I think that now, I mean, it's, it's, I can't, 
I mean, I work out every day. I can't not do it. Yeah. And it's it's very zen for me, and it's actually become a way for me to control my anxiety. It's become, you know, like a positive addiction, which I didn't know existed. Right. No, I, I have it, too. I've had yeah. it for years. And I think I talked about this uh, just yesterday, you know, with somebody on this show. And, uh, yeah. you know, I think it's a common thing for writers or for some writers oh, yeah. anyway. Well, you know why? Because as a writer... You're always in your head. You never feel connected to your body. Like, before I started working out, I don't think I'd ever met my body before, ever. Like, my body would text me to, like, be like, can we hang out? And I'd be like, no, <laughs> leave me alone. I want to go eat some food and, like, write some more at my desk. Right. And then when you start working out, you get more in tune with all of you. Uh-huh. Like everything. The brain, the body, everything. And you just become more accountable for your actions. And you, you mean that sounds a little hokey, but they really are connected. Oh, they're so fucking connected, for sure. And, you know, I have cerebral palsy, so, like... You know, working out for me was always a source of anxiety and fear because I just didn't know if I could actually physically do it. But I mean, spoiler, I can. (laughs) And it's been it's been very powerful. And yeah, I just you know, you hear these stories of people being like, I didn't work out a day in my life and I started now, it's like my new drug and then you're like, Fuck off. But really it did become like that for me. Also, I come up with all my ideas while I'm working out for writing. Uh All of them. Yeah. Because it's the only time I'm really disconnected from everything. And it's it's great. I really like, and then I walk, you know, go home from the gym, and I just start writing down all the ideas that I thought of, and it's been great. Good for it's, you. It's a VV positive. Is it good for uh, cerebral palsy? Yes, it is good. I mean, it's so funny because it's like it's kind of a double edged sword because working out every day does kind of tighten you like up a little bit. Yeah. And I have really tight muscles, so it's really important to stretch before and after a workout, which I kind of low key and kind of lazy about uh-huh. and but it's good because you know you need to be in the best shape you can because like like being fat and having cp is like not the not the look because like it will put so much stress on your on your body which is already kind of like tight as a rubber band so it's really good that you maintain a healthy weight uh, how does like how does uh, sir i mean forgive me for not knowing no more. it's how, fine how does I'm it sure work listeners out there don't know a thing so i'm <laughs> happy to be informative well, yeah I don't, tell I don't us. really know a lot <laughs> i mean i'm not like i really don't i had to like I mean, my book is about having cerebral palsy, which I'd never written about before because, you know, I was ashamed, et cetera, et cetera. But I, you know, I don't really know. I know that the cases run from mild to wild. And so I have a very mild case, but it can be, I'm very functional and I can do basically anything. But then there are others that are basically vegetables and they have severe brain damage and can't live on their own. Yeah. So in our wheelchairs. Is that why you don't drive? You know... I've never actually tried it. The doctors say that I could probably do it, but I know my brain really well, and I know when it short circuits. I know I know the weak spots in my brain. You know what I mean? And I think that the what, when you drive, you have to make very much like on the cuff like decisions that will like like you know just immediate. And I have trouble with that. Yeah, I I, I really do. I, my my brain doesn't process you know like you know left to right lane like immediately. Da da da. And I have depth perception issues, so I probably shouldn't drive no I yeah i probably shouldn't yeah it's a good idea for me to be off the road <laughs> <laughs> well no but the, like, i think about this all the time like we talk about oh i got to eat well oh i got to exercise oh i got to uh stay out of the sun all the things we do to sort of uh, self-protect and ensure uh hopefully a long lifespan the most dangerous thing we do is get inside of a car whether yeah. we're driving or not it's really scary and my uber drivers are crazy too they're not yeah like, yeah it's, and you're in a metal box going like 65 miles an hour and I there's know. like lots of other metal boxes moving in close quarters like 
it's amazing that there aren't more accidents. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I'm, I gonna, I'm knocking on wood now. I feel like I know, babe. Are... I think you're cursing. Americans <laughs> are coming up, and i like, uh, like, the day he died in a car accident, he was talking about it. Well, I know. I want self-driving car. I want the uh, the cars that drive themselves that have like reduced the accident. You know, Do you think I, that's going to actually work? Yes. Really? I think I think it's going to wind up being illegal for people to drive at some point. I'm obsessed with that. Me too. I can get on my fucking level. Yeah, and then I can start. Then I can then I can text while I'm in a car yeah. and be on the internet and be full. Then I can never get away. Yeah, just be, be wasted. So drunk, like literally so drunk <laughs> all the time. Wasted and on the internet while you're in a car. Which, wasted texting, like getting a blowjob. Right. <laughs> the world is your fucking oyster. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. come. And plus, you know, as a father of children, yes. Uh, then <laughs> when they turn 16, it'll just be like get in the pod and go to the party and yeah. come home. You know, I don't exactly. have to think about to some 16-year-old. Yeah. I don't want, like, that, uh, you know, human error potential. Oh, yeah, totally. Remember I want that to... episode of Full House when, like, Stephanie Tanner goes joyriding with some boys? <laughs> and then, like, like, and then, like, one day, the, like, her dad is like, don't ride with those boys. Don't ride in cars with boys. It's dangerous. And then she, like, stays behind one night, and her friend Gia gets into a car accident. Oh, God. Remember that? No. No. Well. <laughs> I can feel it, though. You can feel it. It's going to be your life soon. Damn. Kids. Yeah. So, okay. So, uh, growing up in Ventura, yeah. uh, cerebral palsy, like, did you know, like, when do you find out that you have that? Well, honey, you're born with it. You're born with it. Oh, yeah. I so, mean, from the beginning. Yeah. Well, you know, um, so I was born with, you know, my brain losing oxygen, hence the brain damage, hence the cerebral palsy. And um, Was that was that a circumstance of birth? Like, yeah, you, you were just birth. trapped was, in the canal kind was, of thing? It was bad. It was bad birthing. The, the, the doctor made a bad decision while delivering me, and that decision cost me some brain cells. <laughs> Shit. Is, yeah. it, that, co- that doesn't cause cerebral palsy, though, does it? No, it does. I mean, that, that did. In this particular case, I, I did get cerebral palsy as a result of how I was born. Yes. Fuck. Um, it's okay. I got a settlement. It's, okay. it's chic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how much but, did you get? Did you like enough to live on for your life? No. I would say I got enough to live off of to <laughs> live in New York. To intern, uh-huh. to get a job that paid me very little to write, and then to eventually get a job that paid me a lot of money, TV, and right. now I'm financially stable on my own. There you but are. But like, what money get, what money buys you is time, and so I I never had to work a restaurant job. I mean, I never could like lol because I mean the funny thing about having cerebral palsy is that. The, the the most basic things I can't do really like like you wouldn't want me to work in a restaurant I would be clumsy I would, I would shatter plates I wouldn't you know, spilling hot food yeah basically yeah. yeah but it's like but then I can write like a book you know what I mean I have like the mental capacity to write a book but I can't you know give your order at McDonald's it's very weird I can't do like the yeah this so, is sort of great that protects you from all these shitty jobs <laughs> well yeah but I mean like I was very very grateful to have that money and so, because really that did let me just write for a thought catalog for not that much money for two years which got me my book agent right and then my book agent got me my you know TV agent and then now I'm writing for TV and like I was able to get a job in TV at 27 because I had money. I mean, really. And I think that people don't talk about that kind of stuff. Well, that's a good point. I mean, just people having the time to write books, period, often come from some sort of situation of privilege. Now, in your case... you know, there's an asterisk. It's not. A, it's privilege, but it's a special. I mean, it's a well. That's the thing. Like, I because like, I I never told anyone in New York that I had cerebral palsy. I actually I got hit by a car when I was 20, and, I, and then I moved to New York, and then I just made myself like an accident victim because I never identified with having CP. So I just like lied to everybody and said I got hit by a car. Oh, you did? Yeah, it was rude. I mean, like I shouldn't have done it, but like it, it like you know, it like let me have like a new lease on life and let me like live life the way I wanted to. Yeah, you reinvented yourself. I, I reinvented myself, but it's funny because it, it felt like, you know, putting a bandaid to like a much larger wound. It, like it made me feel comfortable and confident for like mm, two or three years. And then it made me be like, 
I'm still lying to myself about who I am. That makes me feel sad. You know what I mean? And then I had to, like, get my shit together, and I had to write about cerebral palsy in this book, and then face the music, and, you know, come out to everybody as someone who was disabled. Yeah. So, which was which was a long process. What, what about the process of telling people who previously believed you had been hit by a car? I mean, I guess you they, were they you knew. were hit by I mean, car. My friends, my friends in in California knew about my CP, and I don't think I don't know. I honestly can't remember. Like, it just never came up. Like, I don't know if they. I don't. I mean, I'm sure my best friends knew that I was like, oh yeah, like I'm basically telling people I just got hit by a car in New York, and it's like fun. And I'm sure they just didn't challenge that. Obviously, that's my business. Like, whatever. Right. But, uh, you know, it's not like CP ever came up. Like, even before I got hit by a car, like, you just knew never to talk about it with me. Because I just would never speak about it. I was so ashamed. You were ashamed. Oh, totally. I mean, it was, like, really rude to be, like, disabled and also, like, twist to gay. And have to be, like, thrust into this culture that, like, you know, places such an emphasis on, like, physical perfection. And here I am, like... Wait, gay culture? Yeah. Yeah. And here I am just, Especially like, in LA. Life away. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And even New York, New York though, I think yeah, it's yeah, harder. Because yeah. the thing about LA is that people have, like... They're stupid. I mean, like, a lot of them are. You know what I mean? They're beautiful, but they're dumb. New York, they're beautiful and fucking smart. And it is like, okay, well, shit. <laughs> and you go to a gay bar, and it's, like, the smartest, most beautiful people in the world. And then here I am, like, just, like, limping at the gay bar. Like, right, you know, like, right. Like, on a play. Like, uh, you know, so it felt very rude. Like, in L.A., I feel confident because I've met a lot of boys here, and it's, like, not the look. You know what I mean? It's just, like, I feel like I have... Whatever, I feel like, whatever. But the point is that I came out about having cerebral palsy, and since then, my life has, like, done a 180. And this book basically, like, saved my life, like, writing it. It's well, just, it lifts a weight. When you're, when you're living a lie, and it's kind of like being in the closet. It, no, it, it's very much, and I would say that coming out of this closet was way more difficult than being gay. I mean, like, being gay was, like, fucked up and rude, and I hated it, and I, like, went through the typical, like, coming out, like, you know, hiding gay porn on my web browser, being ashamed, blah, 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 but when I came out, I came out, and that was it. When did you come out? 17. 17. How did your your parents handle it? They don't care. They don't care. And I had such a gay family. I mean, yeah. What do you mean? Like, lots of relatives and siblings? Yeah, like, my, my uncle was gay, um, my grandfather actually died of AIDS, because he was like in the closet, like he was fooling around with men, which was like a big family secret. And so I think that it's just in my, my genetic. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, because I have a friend, I want to say she has a sister. It's like both siblings are gay. Like, and my it's, sister's it's, bisexual. Okay, so it's, yeah. it's like there can be like, because usually it's like, uh, I've heard people say it's like one out of ten people, or you know, yeah. these numbers are sort of iffy. I don't know, babe. There's like so many of us. Like, I, honestly, like we're like growing exponentially. Well, yeah, but okay, so okay, so I'll I'll uh, append what I was just going to say. It's like you, you sometimes hear like oh one out of ten people, and then at the same time I'll I'll be like oh my god, there seems to be like a genetic cluster in this family. It's mm-hmm. like a higher incidence, and there's some genetic component to it. I didn't stand a chance. <laughs> and then there's also the but then there's also like the uh, the Kinsey scale. Mm-hmm. And those, you know, tests that he did were like, you know, you're interviewing people and not, um, you know, and, and preserving their anonymity or whatever. And what, what people say off the record yeah. indicates that like, f- like 45% of people are having homosexual experiences in their life. Now, whether well, did you have any gay experiences? Never, never, never did even, you, did never you want even to No, And like no. never even like, but this is my joke. I always say like if, if one is extremely hetero uh-huh. and 10 is extremely gay. 
I'm like a four. I feel like four. A, well, like a three point five. You're like borderline bisexual. <laughs> Wait. I just feel like I'm sensitive. I feel uh-huh. like I'm not like a super bro. Yeah. Um. I mean, there's some. It's a little bit tongue in cheek, but like that's what I always feel like. Like I almost could be, but I'm not. I'm squarely hetero. Right. But like I understand that like it's a sliding scale. If if I was on a desert island uh-huh. with another dude and we yeah. were shipwrecked for like a decade, yeah, I'd probably fuck him. What about like? Two weeks, <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Probably not. I, th- I would still think I can. Be I love rescued. you go to a decade. Straight guys are so extreme. Guys are such drama queens. Like me, like literally, if it was ten years, like literally. Okay, and you're like, oh fuck you. If it was six months, okay, I'm calling bullshit on that right now. Not getting your dick sucked for six months. You guys would freak the fuck out and be fucking each other like banshees. Please, honey, I call bullshit. What about if you were on a desert island with a woman? Would you switch oh, teams? Oh, that's actually... When you turn the tables on me like that, bro. Um, 20 years. You know, actually, I don't know. Because yeah. I'm so not physically attracted to women at all. Where are you? I mean, like, if, if, if I'm t- 10, I'm 10... You're a 10. I'm a 10, 12, 14, 15. I'm literally, like, so high up there. Yeah. I never fucked around with girls. You think ever. vagina's disgusting? Well, you know, you say that, it's like, like it has a ring of misogyny in it. Yeah. You know, like, when gay men are like, vagina, it's gross. It's like, okay, like, grow the fuck up. And also, like, check your misogyny. Um, no, I think that uh, I just, they don't appeal to me. Yeah. And they're confusing. They are, they're confusing to me. I'm sure they are. It doesn't, you know, dicks are, like, very simple. You just, yes. You just touch it, and you grope it, and you thrust, you know, whatever. But, like, vaginas seem VV complex. Yeah, 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 yeah. And each one's different. It's, like, a different, like, I, you know. No, I, they're all different. Like, like snowflakes. I didn't know that. Social snowflakes. Um, I love that. So, okay. So, you, uh, but you had, did you have a happy childhood? Yeah, I did. Um, I had, yeah, I mean, I did. I, I, I pretty much did. My family was pretty crazy. Like, we were weird, but not in a fuck you up forever kind of way right you know actually my book is dedicated to my mom and dad and i say to mom and dad thank you for fucking me up just the right amount because i think it was literally just the right amount of fucked up that i needed to like <laughs> to be just aware of how things worked and be creative and you know whatever but i don't think it was enough to really cause any psychological damage yeah i mean my parents divorced when i was eight years old and i think that they both kind of just like we're like brb we're not gonna be parents for a few years like xoxo like good luck yeah <laughs> and they kind of like had their midlife crises you know because it's like baby boomers are like a lot different than millennials because millennials are like are like eat pray blog their way through their 20s and like you know my mom was like married with kids at my age you know so i don't think that they really had a chance to find themselves sure and i think they find themselves post-divorce when they're like 40 or like retirement i feel like my parents yeah. now i mean because my mom had kids when she was 22 oh yeah she didn't find herself honey she found diapers that's all three kids yeah that's what she did yeah so now she's doing stuff oh now she's doing, yes, now she's like at yosemite with yeah. my dad right now of course like living laughing and loving totally i mean it happens you know they're like basically like living like girls you know <laughs> <laughs> and it's like you know it just it just happens later on in life so i think that they like looking back at it now i i totally understand where they were coming from but at the time it was sort of like I felt like I was like living in a party of five house. You know what I mean? I was like, where's mom and dad? What were they doing? Were they partying? Were they out? No, I mean, my mom, my dad moved to Malibu when I was 14. So he was pretty much out of the picture. Um, How like, often did you see him? Um, Maybe like, it was still a lot. Probably like once a week, once every two weeks. Okay, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my dad and I have always been close. We've never not been close, actually. Always. And I actually didn't really mind him not being around. My mom was around but she was like distracted and like going out with her girlfriends and all that stuff again like all things now that like i'm like oh yeah i get it like, how old was she um she was like 40 when i divorced so. see but see that's the thing is that like 
And I don't want to, again, I don't want to um, be ageist. Yeah, yeah. But for a woman who's 40 and divorced and is looking at the rest of her life, she's probably like, i got to figure my shit out. Well, and she looked good at 40. She was a hot mom. Well, yeah, and so it's like, I'm, am I going to find somebody? I mean, was she out dating? She was dating, honey. A yeah. lot. I mean, she, like, dated, like, all the black guys in Ventura, there were like five of them, but she dated all of them. <laughs> yeah. She only did, it's so funny, my mom only dated black men. The only white men she dated was my dad, and then the guy she's with now. She remarried? She, yeah, she did. Yeah. But before that, it was just a string of like fun, gregarious black men coming like through our door. Like, <laughs> and you liked them? Yeah, they were cool. Yeah, they all were cool. I mean, you know, as much as like a 12 year old can like any new guy that your mom is dating. Right. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, the fuck away well but you know it's just it, it, it you make a good point in talking about how you're still close with your parents despite all of this yeah because they're human beings they make everybody makes mistakes sometimes relationships don't work out that's life there's ebbs and flows to everything yeah like, my mom and did, my mom and i had a really bad relationship for like if like probably like six years and but that doesn't mean anything but really. she loved you yep you knew did. you knew that yeah your oh, dad totally i always knew that right and your dad loved you and like they were they were trying the best they could they were trying the best they could and they for all intents and purposes were there for you they were and I mean, they were uh, yeah so I, I don't know i guess i just think like you know parents can often worry about uh, being perfect but like that's really at the, yeah. at the heart of it you can fuck up a lot of things as long as you like love your kid they know that you love them Right. And you're there for them as much as you can be. You're trying your best. Yeah. I mean, my the important thing is that my foundation wasn't cracked. I mean, really. Like, you meet people whose foundation was cracked. Yeah. And no trust. And it's, it's hard. It's really hard when you have a cracked foundation to really overcome all that stuff and to be a strong, stable person. I was very fortunate. Like, my base level was good. You know what I mean? And I think that anything bad that happened after that, it was fine because my foundation was, was sturdy. You have and siblings? Yeah, I have two. I well, actually, I have a oh, that's right. you said you had a sister who's bisexual. A sister who's bisexual. She's like thirty-one. She lives in Park Slope. She's like a hippie. She's a hula hooper. Oh yeah, you know hoopers. I, know. I went to Boulder, dude. Really? Yeah. Oh my god. So she's like, honey, she's on that tip. I yeah. Mean, all her, she just posts videos of her hooping in Prospect Park. All like, <laughs> like she, she's thirty-one. She yeah, and she's she, hooping. She renamed herself Alice Sun, like S U N. I mean, she's like hippie. Yeah. You know what I mean? She's like living, laughing. I have, I swear to you, I have uh, on a not infrequent basis, I'll like, I'll like freeze, I'll freeze in the middle of whatever I'm doing and suddenly tell myself like the hippies are right. No. No? No, babe. I mean, it's never been my journey. Like I like love and respect my sister's journey and she's very happy and like live and let live. But like, I mean, it's like to me, like I have tons of opinions and I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> I'm like very critical, so me being a hippie would never. Yeah, work you, out. They, you know, they're too relaxed. That's what I'm saying. Like, though. wake up. They're you know in bands. I mean? They're ch- they're living life slow. Yeah, they're hula like, hooping. Chill, like chill out. No, you're unconscious. Wake the wake the fuck up. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Maybe I'm like peanut butter and jealousy about like them and the way they are. That's being so go with the flow. That's why. That's what I mean. But it's like, like, I'm not really jealous about that because like then you're just like on a permanent vacay in your brain. And like as a writer, like lol, my brain yeah. needs to always be working overtime. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and I'm okay with that. I like it. I mean, it's a it's a small price to pay for. She smoked a lot of pot. She she does yeah because yeah. she is i think she's anxious and i think it helps you smoke a lot of pot no never i hate pot yeah I hate it it makes me more paranoid yeah more, more paranoid yeah it does <laughs> i mean it does i mean I, I like i smoked weed for like you know 10 years no not 10 years let's see i smoked weed for the first time 16 and i would always do it once in a while when it was around you know and every time i would do it i'd be like i fucking hate weed and i would be like but then when you're young you just it's like stabbing yourself over and over again be like 
this doesn't feel good. But then, like, doing it again. Yeah. And you're like, this doesn't feel good. And then I remember, like, when I was 26, I was like, oh, if I don't like weed, I don't have to smoke it. And right. it was literally like an epiphany. Right. To be like, oh, if this makes me feel bad, I should probably stop doing it. Yeah. Like, you just don't ever think about the why. You never do. Right. It's just, you just do it. You just, you're 100% do. I had that same epiphany with, like, hangovers. Oh, really? I well, mean, what do you I just mean, being in them? college, drinking yeah. too much, and then after a while, you're like, I have the flu. Yeah. This gives me the flu. Well, do you still, like, I'm sure the hangovers, like, do you have, like, really bad hangovers? Not, well, the older I get, yeah. Yeah. I'm 39. It's no fun. I will say, and this is dark, but, like, when you work out every day, you can pretty much, like, your hangovers are gone. At your age. How old are you? You're a I'm child. Yeah. <laughs> Give it 10 years. <laughs> I know, right? You're like, come back on my podcast. Yeah. We can <laughs> see. the same conversation over again. It's just, and then also having a child, like you just, you, oh, well, you can't, you can't be like, I cannot look at my daughter and be like, daddy's got a, you know, daddy needs the morning. Yeah, I can't do that. Daddy needs his juice. Sleep me Daddy needs close, to close the blinds. Yeah. Hydrate and no sunlight. It doesn't yeah. work. It doesn't work. That's and, true. I feel like having a kid must feel like a permanent hangover anyway. It is. Drinking. I mean, it's like in the sleep deprivation years, like I'm, we're getting ready to have another one and it's going to be. We're right back in it, you know, with yeah. like no sleep and then two. So it's going to be exhausting. Um, That's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot, but it's going to be fun. And, uh, you know, I, it's all worth it. Like you go through all of it. And then the truth is that you're in such a fog when it's happening that mm-hmm. like then you emerge from it and the kid is sleeping through the night. And then Did you always want to have kids? Always. Really? I just have zero interest in having kids. Yeah, you might change. I or know. maybe not. No, I mean, I know that. But I mean, I also know that like I love... I think about it in money. I think about kids as being a lot of money and you're putting a lot of money into this person that might grow up and fucking hate you or become a drug addict and a psycho. (laughs) And then you're like, I just spent literally probably a million dollars on you like over the course of all these years and you just end up to be a churlish druggie who like doesn't return my phone calls. Go fuck yourself. Give me my money back. That's how I feel. Literally, I'm like, it's an investment that is not a guaranteed return. I would posit that you (laughs) might want to soften the stance if you ever try to have kids. Well, I wouldn't. I mean, that's the thing. If I, I feel that way 10 years from now I'm not having kids yeah don't you know, you know? I mean it's like I uh, I see them and I see dollar signs I, I see things that prevent me from getting an APC t-shirt what's an APC t-shirt I don't even know what that is babe the designer APC okay see I don't know this stuff you're like anyways I'm straight wouldn't fuck a guy with ten chicken decade fuck a guy what are you talking about APC oh my god yeah you know it's like with kids like uh, like I I, I'm trying to learn to talk carefully about this because I have friends who don't want to have kids, and I think that's a valid position. And Ugh, are you one of those judgmental parents? No, I'm not. Here's okay. what I say about it. Is that like, if you don't want to have kids, that's totally fine. People who say they hate kids, I just tweeted about this. People who say they hate children, I'm like, really? Like, kids are the best people. Like, uh, kids on balance. They could be annoying. Mm-hmm. They can be costly. I will mm-hmm. grant you that. Yeah. But like, if you spend quality time with a child, like they're the innocence and the joy and like the moment to moment, like the being in the moment, like they sort of teach you how to live. Right. If you hate children in a bl- if you say you hate children in a blanket way, I question that. I think it is displaced anger. I think what people hate is being told that they're supposed to have them or yes. they're not full human beings. Yeah. And so then they're like, fuck it. I hate kids. And they're just trying to shut you down and like, just trying. it's like a reaction emotionally against that. Um, so my position is that if you don't want to have kids, that's totally fine. I don't judge. Um, and if you really don't want to have them, then you shouldn't do it because of some weird pressure because that's not the right right reason. But what I will say from my own experience is that, um, I didn't know what like true love felt like until I had a kid. I love your wife. I love her death. (laughs) 
I, I do. We love each other. Love her death. No, I said I love her to death. We love. I love her death. I love her death. That will come soon. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, like, spousal love or significant other love is conditional. Um, because if like I find out that she's fucking the mailman or vice versa, there's going to be problems. Right. And I guess there can be ruptures in relationships with children, but like I just can't ever imagine. Like my my daughter could pretty much do anything. Right. And I'm going to love that child. And like it's just it's the way that it feels. And like I don't know. You know, maybe there are people who are childless who can have that feeling absent of a child. But as a parent who has experienced it, it's like okay. Like, like don't have children that's totally fine and like life will be rich in other ways and right. it's a completely valid thing but like there is a, i think what parents who have kids do when they try to like encourage their friends to have kids i think it's often misperceived as like dude quit trying to tell me to live my life like you quit being annoying right. what they're saying is like i want you to feel this because it fucking feels great well, that's true. I mean, no one loves me quite like my mom and dad. I mean, like, I could literally just, like, run them over with a car, and they could still be like, we understand. <laughs> I mean, they're they're so supportive, and they're so loving, and, like, they... To, you're right. I guess, like, just, yeah, no one does quite love me like they do. I mean, that's that's good. I don't know. You're making it sound kind of appealing now. <laughs> it, you know, there's something deep about it. And I'm I- definitely, like, open to consideration, because my, my brother's not going to have kids, and my sister's not having kids, so... Alison's not having Allison's kids. Alison's not having kids, babe. She doesn't want them. Well, you never. She yeah. majored in child development too, which I think is so funny. Huh. And she was like, just kidding. Like this is not what I want. And my brother has no interest in having kids, and so it's just it's just me. It's it runs squarely on the gay kid to have kids. That's like not fun for yeah. me. Yeah. Well, and, but I mean, what do you have a significant other? Yeah, you do. Yeah. How long you been together? Um, five months. But like, I don't date. So like, this is my first real relationship. Uh huh. And. I kind of always knew it would happen this way, where I would take a long time to get my shit together, which it did. It took me a long time. My 20s were really hard, really painful, blah, 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 blah. And then I've kind of emerged, and I'm very happy, very healthy. And then the second that happened, I met a guy. It's funny how that works, huh? It always works that way, though. I mean, the boyfriend, my boyfriend now, it's like I would not have been able to attract him a year ago. I how did you meet him? Um, it's kind of a funny story. He was he was voted most eligible bachelor in New York on Refinery Twenty Nine, and then I was like, oh, he's cute and lives in New York, so there's no chance we could ever get together because I was like still in self sabotage mode, like still kind of like unlovable, like whatever. And then he was like, and then he, I added him on Twitter, and then he DM'd me and was like, hey, like we should get a drink. And I'm like, mm, sorry, babe, you're in New York. There's no chance this will ever work. And then he was like, well, I'm moving to LA like next week, and I was just like. Damn. My plan to be alone forever is getting sabotaged again. <laughs> right. Um, so then we met for drinks, and he was so amazing, so funny. That's the thing, too. I didn't realize how important his sense of humor was. I mean, it, I mean, I did know. But I would date these guys who were really sweet, really warm, really great, not funny. Not funny. And I would yeah. sit there, and I'd make them laugh, and they'd laugh, and they'd be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'd be like, okay, what, what's your turn? I mean, to me, it's like... All my friendships, my boyfriend, the conversation is like a tennis match. It's like bing, That's bing, 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 bing. I was just going to say, got, you got to find somebody you can volley with. Yeah, exactly. It's the banter. The banter keeps me alive. Like, I, I need jokes. I need that play. I'm like, I need playfulness. Playfulness yep. is very important to me. Sure. And um, I met Jonathan, and he was so fucking funny. Oh, my God. And, like, he could out-funny me, which was, like, VV impressive. And I was just like, okay. But then I immediately kind of just, like, friend-zoned myself because I was like, there's no way someone this attractive and so warm and so smart and so funny could be interested in someone like me. And then I finished the book. I wrote this post called Coming Out of the Disabled Closet for Thought Catalog that basically 
I was just like, I have CP, this is my journey, blah, blah, blah. And I swear to God, overnight my life changed forever. I mean, it was just like, I just, writing that post was just an instant release and I just had instant confidence. It was crazy. Literally just publish and being like, mm, done. It was literally immediate. And then January, I wrote that post probably like, you know, two days, like in December or maybe early January. And then on January 1st, uh, it was the new year and I was out with Jonathan and I kissed him and I was like, I'm like, fuck it. Go after the things you want out of your league. Bullshit. You know, like just fucking make a move and see what happens. And so I did. And we've been together ever since. Good for you. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. You know, it's so funny. Like in terms of career, I've always had a laser focus. And so I've just always had like a five year plan. I mean, I'm a Virgo. I'm your worst nightmare. I like plan everything out. Um, what's your birthday? September 2nd. Okay. Um, but so career to me has always been, I'm very, like, I'm very lucky and I'm very grateful to have the success that I've had, you know, writing for television, this book and all that stuff. But it's always been my plan. I've always been working so hard at it. Relationships have always been a blind spot. I just didn't know that it could work. I never, I never envisioned a relationship happening for me. I just had resigned that part of myself. So the fact that I have a boyfriend is more shocking than me, like, selling the TV rights to my book. You know what I mean? Like, that's more shocking to me. What, you sold the TV rights? Yeah, I did. I'm doing it with um, Jim Parsons and his production company and Warner Brothers and all that stuff. Good for you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, it was just, like, such a crazy, fast experience doing all that stuff. But it, but it's great. And, um, yeah, that feels really good. Are you going to star? No, that's been... They, they've asked me that and stuff like that. But, no... That's too much for me, I think, for sure. Like, I think that's too much pressure, and I don't act, really. Like, I can play myself, but to me, I don't... To me, what matters is that the stories are great, and they're broken well, and that involves me just being in the writer's room and just, like, leading that. And I know that me being on set and worried about nailing a scene and having to learn how to actually act would take away from me being in the writer's room. Gotcha. And that's more important to me than anything else. Right. And I just feel like... I can't do things that other actors can do because it's like quite simply because of training and experience. And I want, I want whoever plays me to be really great. So, and so whoever plays you is going to have to play you with a CP. CP. That's a hard thing. I feel like people playing, it's not easy to play disabled. Also, my voice is VV specific. So like having someone that can like talk the way that I talk and the slang that I talk and the cadence of my voice is going to be a thing. Do you have somebody picked out? No. No. No, we're we're in the beginning stages. Basically, there's a lot of hoops to jump through. Basically, I have a deal with Warner Brothers to write the pilot. Um and then we're pitching but we're pitching the show in August to networks. So, then we pitch it, then someone buys it, and then I write the pilot still. And then I get a million notes. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, that's when the real fun begins. You know right. what I mean? And, uh, and then, you know, they, if, they, if they like the pilot, they'll shoot it. And if they like how the pilot came out, they'll order it to series. Right. But there's a lot of hoops. Like, I feel like when I, 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 when I, wrote, when I tweeted about the news about, you know, all people, you know, were like, oh, great, your, t- your TV show's coming out soon. And you're like, no. no. Like, if, <laughs> this if is I'm Hollywood. Lu- yeah, this is Hollywood. Things take forever. And, like, if I'm lucky and the show goes to, you know, seri- like, it's a series order, then maybe it's coming out in two years. You know what I mean? Like, but it's going to take a long time. Yeah. You know? It's but congrats be- anyways. Because, like, the thing Thank about you. it is there's lots of hoops to jump through. Yeah. But each hoop is hard to get through. It is. So you oh, need yeah. to, you know, it's worth celebrating getting through even the first one. Yeah, it's great. And I really, the whole process was very illuminating for me because, you know, I've, I've been working in TV for a year and a half, but... I didn't really know much about the business, you know, because I, I moved here and I got the job on Awkward pretty much immediately. How did you get it? Um, 
I got. I mean, it's <laughs> so basically, um, I I moved here in July because I wanted to write for TV, and then Awkward was my first interview, and I got the job in August. Like just was, like that. Yeah, you had a writing sample. Yeah, and I wrote you- the pilot in April because I was like, I need to get out of New York, so I wrote a pilot in April. Got representation in May. Moved out here in July. Got the job in August. I mean, it was crazy. That's unusual. I know. I feel like you should bleep all this out because it's a bad... Like, like there's no way... <laughs> it's very, like... I'm, like, scared. I'm, like, literally a like scarlet letter. Like, literally, like, it's it's something I'm, like... You're just not supposed to talk about this stuff. Right. Like, how, how easy, easy it was. Yeah, because yeah. it's, like... Because it's so not easy for so many people. And, and you know... But you got to get a little lucky. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's... A lot of the things that have happened to me, I've really been aware of, like, luck being on my side and, like, right time, right place sort of thing. That's a big ingredient. Right show. Yeah. You know? And even even selling my TV rights, like, wanting to do a show about a gay disabled character on TV would not really have been possible two years ago. But because of shows like Transparent, because of Hulu, because of Amazon, because of Netflix, there are networks willing to take chances, and they know that there's an audience for stories that have never been told before. So there's not, like, you know, so, like, but I feel like... I'm a part of a moment in TV that allows a story like mine to happen. Right. So it's like, again, right time, right place, honey. You yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. that's a big part of it. But it's also recognizing it. I mean, it's a little bit of both. It's hard work. Yeah. It's been, you've been preparing for this. Yeah. And you recognize the moment. You understand that the business is at this particular moment and you're yeah. there to capitalize. So yeah. it's a little bit of everything, but luck, you, you have to be a little lucky. You got to be a little lucky. And seeing how things work out, it's so funny because, you know, Jim was interested first because he found that coming out of the disabled closet post on facebook of all places and i met with him and he was amazing and his husband and uh his manager i mean it was like you know because you meet you meet famous people all the time and it's like bullet to the brain you know it's it's scary out there you know it's like twilight zone but jim was so normal and so funny and so genuinely curious about other people which is another thing you don't see a lot of a lot of in la is people genuinely curious about other people you know, people are like, anyways, when is it my turn to speak? You right. know what I mean? Or, like, people that you'll meet and they'll give you, like, your their IMDb profile, like, you know, in the first <laughs> two seconds. Or they'll tell you what they're working on. You're like, I never asked you, right. psycho. <laughs> like, have some self-awareness. Like, at least, you, like, I get it. I get, like, wanting to go to, like, lunch with someone and, like, being really wanting to tell them good news. But, like, you got to, like, ease into it, honey. Like, yeah. just the tip. Yeah. You can't be, like, fucking them from the first second because you sound <laughs> insane. You sound like a psycho narcissist. So you need to chill out. So Jim, Jim and his partner, um, Todd, were just, like so warm and so just curious about everything and I just connected with them so strongly and then and then I met with other studios who who are great and all that stuff and it became like a bidding war it's so psychological though because once people knew that Jim was interested in this project you know it kind of created like buzz you know it all like this town runs on like buzz sure and, yeah. like heat you sure. know what I mean and it was like what's this book that hasn't been published yet but like people are interested like da 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 and then it's just like so funny doing all of this stuff and going on these meetings because you just know it's so just like not that it doesn't mean anything but sometimes it just doesn't even seem much about the project you know what I mean yeah, it's, it's like more it, yeah. just like who's gonna win you know what I mean right, but, and I never felt that way with Jim ever I mean it was like I, I always knew he was he was just like gen- like also he doesn't need to do anything like he doesn't need to like do a project like you know what I mean he's executive producing yeah and so I just knew that he wanted to do it because he loved the story and he liked my voice and that was just genuine you know so it was just but yeah it's interesting I mean it's just interesting to see how this business works which is a lot on like fear a lot on buzz no one really knows what they're doing. I mean, it's just, it's just weird. Yeah, it's, no, I trust me. It's weird business. And people don't really talk about it either, which I guess I shouldn't either. Why? Like, because it's like, 
there's just a lot of like how this business is run and how people behave like people just accept it you know what I mean and I feel like I'm still young enough to be like I'm confused like how are we accepting this dude I'm, I'm like I got 10 years on you and I'm confused yeah it's very weird you know it's just interesting but people don't talk about it that much which you know I mean I've made a career out of I guess talking about things that other people aren't talking about because I just like don't see a point in lying about something well and you also i mean you're young and you started you, you've started young but uh you did other things yeah and you had some context for other stuff and i yes. think there are people who come out of college get their internship at a studio on a studio lot and that's their career yeah. and they start and they work with them they don't know anything else and if you're coming at hollywood with any kind of different perspective it can be like what the fuck is going on well i will say though having worked for the internet for three years on thought Cow, like i'll tell you internet culture is just as bad as hollywood except for they just pay a lot less <laughs> yeah i mean that's <laughs> a th- you, know? you know what i mean like i dealt with a lot of bullshit on the internet and i got paid nothing for it right. so you know what i will deal with the bullshit that uh, hollywood brings because guess what they fucking pay you did you get paid for the rights for your book the tv yeah. rights oh yeah and i got paid to write i'm gonna get paid to write the pilot no matter what no like no, because it's I guess the difference of like an if come deal or like not an if come deal. An if come deal is like if a network buys it, they'll pay me to write the pilot. But I'm getting paid regardless if anyone buys it. Right. So like that's great. That's awesome. Because I just know for sure that's like money I'll get, and like I'll get I'll get to write the pilot no matter what happens and all that stuff. So that's very exciting. That's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. So um so yeah I mean it's just like it's just funny. So you anything that's kind of like head scratching or weird like whatever i mean i yeah like i've been in this situation before when i was making you know two grand a month so like cool bring it yeah well and you know things have gone well you've had some good luck here in uh yeah. in hollywood and you know you seem to have found a fit yeah it's been it's been really good i mean i think the thing is too is like you just need to surround yourself with good people like you know and just like and just you know not affiliate with like insane people even if they're like good for your career or something like that you know it just like what do you mean like in terms of representation in terms no, of like yeah well re- like finding good representation and re- agents that get you is very important who are you represented by uh, TV? uta yeah but it was like drama because did you hear about the c like everyone exiting ca yeah. that was during my deal and i was at caa so I had to. I left with my agent that originally got me at CAA, and I had to leave one behind in the middle of the deal, which was like, Ugh. I mean, babe, there's just like such headache stuff. You know what I mean? It's like, like again, no one talks about this stuff. Like, like because it's not. It's so funny. Like I made a career on Thought Catalog about talking about like very universal things, and I found that as the older I get, a how boring my life has gotten, but b how bizarre it's gotten at the same time. You know, and how like not relatable it can be. You know. Like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna write like a like blog post about like CEA leaving and like my agent leaving and being like where should I go? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> go <that's>... viral. <laughs> that post is gonna go viral because everyone can relate to that. Or like me having to choose a lawyer to do my deal and having to go out to like breakfast with a lawyer and then a dinner with a lawyer and having to meet so many <laughs> fucking lawyers and just like talking about the business and deals. You know what I mean? It's like oh my god, bullet to the brain. So weird. Not you quite know? as yeah, not quite as universal and not chic. You can't talk about it. it's. So so like, there's just no like way to talk about it without coming off well. You right. know what I mean? It's just sort of like, because it's just a weird thing. You don't want to seem complaining because it's amazing. But it's like, it's also just VV bizarre. And it's like an interesting thing to navigate for the first time. I had no idea what I was doing meeting all these two. I never met anyone. I never met anyone because my job with Awkward was so immediate that I didn't do like, meet the town. Like, here's a water bottle. Like, go on a million couches. You know, I never did any of that. You didn't. So, no. So, this is my first time meeting, like, you know, studio heads and, and production companies and all that stuff. And it was all at once. It was all, like, in a two-week span. Damn. And um, I have to say, most people were, were great. I mean, it was, like, funny. I mean, there 
feel like no matter what, I love meeting new people regardless. Like I'm actually like not a, I'm not an introvert, you can tell. <laughs> uh so I actually love like meeting someone and getting to know their, their life and then like leaving after 40, you know. I think it's fun. Yeah. Well, yeah. and yeah, and the thing too is that you, know, you talk about how Hollywood works or doesn't work or how crazy it is. I think maybe part of it is that you have a lot of good people in these executive positions. But not a lot of them have, like, real green light authority. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of them actually have, like, hands on purse strings and can actually say yes. And so it winds up feeling like you can have these interactions, you can have these meetings, and you walk out and you're like, well... They mean nothing. They mean nothing. They mean less than nothing. Right. Yeah. And you're just like... you've been. I've been to some generals where I'm just like, my head is spinning. It's like, why am I here? What is this about? What are we going to do? I, I, I don't understand it. Like, or, or it goes really well, and you have all this personal chemistry, and then it's yes. like... Oh my God, we're in love! Like this is the yeah. greatest, and then you walk out, and it's like you never hear from him again. <laughs> no, never. You've just been like you've just been like fucked one night stand. Literally, like call the, me. the baby's not mine. Yeah. <laughs> call me. Yeah, call me, babe. Let's pay it. Let's go to Harvard and Stone. Get ketchup drinks. Yeah, let's get drinks. <laughs> yeah, I've like never understood. Yeah, it's it's very weird. So okay, so what do you want to do? Like you have you say you work in five year plans. You're a Virgo. You well, seem I want to be my on show to happen. You want your show to happen. That's number one. I mean, I want a fucking gay disabled character on TV. I want to show gay sex the way that I've experienced it, which is like, which is how. Well, you know, like, yeah. Any, how is sex for it with sit with CP? Well, I'm very fortunate. Like my case being mild, so I yeah. can do basically whatevs. But like, but. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, I always say, like, you think the sex on girls is awkward? Get ready for gay sex, honey. I mean, seriously. <laughs> like, that shit is a shit show, literally. Oh, so it's like, like, get ready. And I'm like, I told them, I, I want someone shitting on someone's dick in the pilot. I mean, I literally, would, I told, like, the execs that. And they're like, great, we love it. What do you mean shitting on someone? Like, they're just, they're shit want, gets on the penis. Yeah, shit gets on the penis. But no one takes it, like, actually physically takes a dump on the penis. No, oh, like, okay. not an actual full dump. But yeah, like, shit gets on your dick. I would, yeah, I'm I've always wondered about that. Well, guess what? It happens. Okay. Um, you know, you, how do you clean out? What do you? Don't you? Can you? Well, it's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, this is actually okay. So, I lost my virginity. It's in the book, so I don't mind talking about it. Um, I lost my virginity to someone, and the first time we had sex, I did shit on his dick, and I was traumatized. I mean, talk about like there was no text, there was no like anal sex text, like there was no Google, like I couldn't, like you know, whatever. Yeah, what like, do I? I need some instructions. I know. I didn't know what I was doing, and then when I thought when I shit on his dick, I was like, I'm broken. I'm literally broken. I like something in my body is broken. I just will shit every time someone puts the dick in my ass. Blah blah. blah. And then I was very traumatized, and then I. Then I did Google it afterwards, and I realized that that happens a lot. And then people... Good old I guess, Google. What? I said good old Google. I know. Anal sex shit. Am I crazy? <laughs> Am I normal? Should I In quotes. Yeah. So it has that exact phrasing. Exactly. So um, I guess what you can do is you can douche, yeah. uh, which I've never done. All right. So, okay, here's the deal. So with my new boyfriend, uh, I haven't done any of that. And I've just prayed... You know what I mean? To God that, like, everything is going to work out okay. And it has. Okay. And people say... You watch what you eat? Um, yeah. Yeah, but, like, is I it do. Is like, no sex after burritos? Is it that Well, kind of that's... I mean, that's real. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm a bottom. So, like, you know... You know, yeah. I mean, sometimes when I fucking go to, like, you know, Malo or Cecita del Campo, I'm not feeling exactly <laughs> sexy-nexy. You know what I mean? I'm not like, anyways, let's fuck. Um, I'm like, mm, anyways, let's go to bed, and then maybe in the morning we can try something after I've, like, actually gone to the bathroom. I mean, it is real. You know what I mean? And yeah, it's it just like, yeah. I mean, sometimes you, like, your your stomach is a temperamental diva, and you can't you can't put anything in there. Right. Things will happen. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, people, people have said that 
sometimes like douching like will open the floodgates. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's best not to disturb down there because then you like waken up your asshole and it's like it's like rousing from sleep and it's like, what do you want? And it's like, oh, you want to shit? fucking shit. I'm like, what's fucking shit? And you're like, no, that's what I don't want. That's what I do. This is why I'm doing this. Why so don't shit? And you're like, ha, too bad. You're going to shit everywhere. And then you're like, ah, what have I done? So I have like, <laughs> I have just like not gone that route. And I've just like been myself, like fully and not done anything. And, right. And it's all worked out, luckily. But I mean, when I was younger, yes, I did shit but on But now it. you're five months into the relationship. You shit on his dick. It's like you're committed. I know. He can handle it. Yeah. He'll deal with it. What was so funny about shitting on someone's dick when I'm 17 is that my boyfriend was just 17 and so horny that he did not care. I was, I was like, can you stop? He's like, I'm almost there. He didn't give a fuck that there was shit on his dick. He didn't give a fuck. He was just happy to be, have his dick in someone's ass. He did the moment. He was like, yeah. He was like, I'm almost there. I'm not going to let this get in the way. God. You know? And you're just like, well, part of you is impressed and then part of you is like disturbed. And so, and did you know, uh, like, I'm always curious about how guys sort this out. Like, yeah. that you're the, you knew you were a bottom from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I did. I mean, I, I think that, um, I don't know how to explain it. It's just, you kind of just know. It's instinct. But most people are verse. I mean, I think I'm going to be probably verse. Right now I'm being like a bottom brat. I'm just like, I only want a bottom. But like when you're with someone for a long time, you kind of just have to switch things up to keep things interesting. I mean, sometimes people are just genuinely verse and they like top and bottom. I think what I is, would, What does like, verse mean? That just means... Just both. Both. Like you can top, you can bottom. There's a word for it. It's called verse. Yeah, verse. Okay. Dave, I'm learning. He's like, oh, I don't know anything because I'm straight. <laughs> Ten years. Remember? Ten years on that island. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, I'm probably going to be verse anyway, because you can't just be with someone for that long and only be in those strict roles. And I think you want to switch things up, keep things interesting, you know? Yeah. And, um, I mean, I'm, like, nervous to top. I am. I don't know why. It just seems like there's a lot of pressure. There's, more, like, maybe more of a performance pressure? Yes, performance pressure. Because if I'm a bottom, I can just stick my, you know, legs in the air like I just don't care. <laughs> and then he can fuck me senseless, and I'll be like, mm, great. Yeah. And it also And feels- you can grade the performance. Yeah, exactly. And, like, yeah, like, like when we're done having sex, like, he's the one, so- like, dripping in sweat, not me. I'm, like, fucking... <laughs> less work. I'm, like, checking my phone. I'm texting, <laughs> tweeting. Immediately to the phone, I'm, post-coitus. No, sir, I'm literally, like, anyway, it's great. Thanks. And, like, you know. Uh, no, and so I, I am a little nervous. Of, I think the performance anxiety is a real thing. And, uh, but, you know, you work through it. Again, five months, you know. Like, I think I'm just being a spoiled brat. You guys going to get married? Uh, do you lol, care about, do you guys, Brad. Do you guys care about that? Um, yeah. I mean, is it something, because I think, like, I have gay friends who are like, I don't give a fuck about marriage. I would want to get married. You would. Well, yeah, I'd want to sign a prenup. I mean, I'm not stupid. You're all about the money. What do you mean? No kids. Kids are dollar signs. Husband. Well, I'm, I'm, I make, I mean, I love talking about money, and I think people don't talk about it enough. I agree. And it's like, and I'm, I make no bones about wanting a nice house in Laurel Canyon, and like, wanting fuck you money, and wanting to be a showrunner, and all that stuff, and like, wanting to get paid well to do what I do. And I think that, like, as writers, there's this kind of inherent shame. And I mean, I still write, I'll still write things for free online if I like the publication or whatever, like, but, like, that's also because I have this other job that does pay me that allows me to do that. But I, like, I, it's really fucked up about websites that don't pay and all that stuff. I mean, I think, 
Like, you don't go to, like, a plumber doesn't come to your fucking house and is like, I'm just feel so lucky to, like, unclog your toilet and, like, you don't have to pay me. <laughs> right. It's like, no, that person is, like, unclogging your toilet. He's, like, the best at unclogging your toilet. Just, like, writers are, like, the best voice for this thing and they, they, they do a good job and they have, that's a skill set. I think that there's still this idea that writing is just isn't valued as much. Like, doesn't, there's not this, like, you, monetary value. Part. Writers need to be, you need to, uh, we, I think we should uh, unionize more somehow. I know. I mean, that's part of the reason why television writers get paid is because well, there's a union. Guild, which yeah. is fucking real. And I love the Writers Guild. God bless. I love going to Bob Hope Hospital and, like, having my own hospital moment. And, like, yeah, I mean, it's it's really good. And we fight for everything. Because, yeah. trust me, they don't like, like, people don't like the guilds. Studios don't like the I mean, like, we have to fight for everything. Right. And the literary writers should do the same thing. Yeah. They might get paid more. I know. I agree. And so it's like. Internet, internet writers should unionize. Somebody. Yeah, I mean, well, Gawker's unionizing. <laughs> that's right. That. And, you know, I laugh, but that's exactly right. Gawker just unionized. Yeah. And Nick Denton, um, I thought, it, what did he say? I'm, like, intensely unconcerned, which I thought was an interesting pairing. You know? I love Nick. <laughs> Do you know him? No. Uh. I know Nick. I mean, I think Nick was actually one of the first people that... Uh, he actually was the first person who discovered me. I wrote a sex review. The first thing I ever wrote was that right after I graduated college... And I wrote a sex review for Butt Magazine. And uh, already just, you know, starting my career on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> Coming out of the gate strong. Exactly, right? My point of view. My voice. <laughs> uh, and and Nick had read it and was like, oh, this is really good. And um, and then I met him. And he actually was thinking about putting me on as, like, a blogger for Gawker. Like, on the weekends or something like that. And then right when that was about to happen, and we, like, were getting the scheduling... I got a job offer from Thought Catalog. It's so interesting. It's like definitely like sliding doors, Gwyneth Paltrow, like your life can go one way or the other, you know? Yeah. And I'm so thankful that I ended up at Thought Catalog. Why? Working for Gawker is like literally the worst thing you could ever do for yourself, your soul, like your whole entire being. Like it is the most, it is the darkest job for me. I mean, like the fact that like, like, okay, like once you work for the internet, like once you know how the sausage gets made, like it is over because you know that people are literally ruining people's lives for like 10 twitter followers and like a five thousand dollar bonus like they will ruin someone's life for for a little bit of notoriety it's just like so fucked up how it's structured and like i don't respect any of those motherfuckers well you know it's funny because you talk about like uh, the negativity and ruining someone's life and i think about like social media and people who have these really sticky social media presences and uh, they seem to have figured out, and this is something I'm always, I'm always late to the game on this stuff, mm-hmm. but they seem to have figured out that there's money, or not money, but at least there could be money, but there is uh, notoriety to be gained, followers to be gained mm-hmm. from uh, conflict and being aggrieved and, like, being pissed off. And, like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? If you're constantly taking that stance, like, you're going to have your enemies, but you're also going to have your backers. And, um, you know, it seems like a really exhausting and unhealthy way to be. Oh, it's so bad. It's so bad. It's like you're getting in your own way. It's like, yeah. And also, if you're going to ruin someone's for someone's life, like, don't do it for less than, like, a couple hundred grand. <laughs> <laughs> right? Get paid. You know what I mean? Like, get paid, honey. <laughs> like, don't do it for that fucking sad bonus at Gawker. You know what I mean? Don't do it so you can, like, get more, like, enchiladas at, like, La Squina. Like, no. Like, give me a break. Like, no. Like, you, like if you're going to just do it, you might as well get a fucking huge payday. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've never, I've never understood outrage culture. I've never understood... Drives me crazy. ...the idea of commenting. I never commented on anything. There's no point. Literally, I would, if I read something I don't like, then I just don't. I just don't engage with it. I don't understand. I've always also been, like, the kind of person where I want to create the thing that people are commenting on. I don't want to comment on the thing that people are creating. 
Because I think that, like, if you're creating something, then kudos to you for even doing that, for being brave. I agree. And then you have all these chicken shit, you know, 20-thing, like, little straight white dweebs in Brooklyn with, like, the Lexapro prescriptions being like, this is bad. Like, this people, I'm like, well, why don't you fucking do something besides, like, drinking every night and having, like, a limp dick? Like, seriously, like, I do not like those guys. Yeah. Like, they're not good people. I don't. They're just, it seems like you would be not a happy person if that's how you're spending your time. No, there's so much better things you can do. Yeah. Like, go color coordinate your bookshelf. I mean, seriously. <laughs> like, I'm like, you know, there's such better uses of your time. Or, like, the con- the time that you would make, you know, writing a comment, why don't you just go write something for yourself? You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I don't understand it. You got your shit together. I do? Yeah. Yeah. You're focused. Yeah, I'm very focused. I've always been very focused. I mean, but I haven't always had my shit together. And I will say, it's so interesting, because in New York, I was a mess. I would go, like, two years without kissing a boy. I would. I was on drugs. I was on painkillers and stuff like that. I was going to say, how do you do drugs with uh, CP? Does, like, if you're taking, like, you know, ecstasy or anything like that. I mean, it still it, works. It still works. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, it works too well. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, physically. Like, physically, does it? how does it manifest for you? Did you ever get yourself into trouble? Yeah, I, I, had, a drug, I had a drug problem in New York. Like any self-respecting 20-something. Sure. <laughs> um, and I, well, when I, <clears throat> so when I got hit by a car. Yeah, what happened with that? I forgot I to know, ask you. I, <laughs> it's really rude. Okay, so I, I got hit by a car when I was 20. And it hit my good side. Cerebral palsy, you have a good side and you have a bad side. I mean, they're both bad sides. So what's, your like, good, what's your good side? My good side is my left, but then my car, the car hit me on my left side. Okay. So it was right. my good side. Lol. So now I just have, like, two, like, not-so-chic sides. And, um, and okay, so the, okay, so the, the, the car hit me going something insane, like 55 miles per hour. Holy like, shit. something insane. I see but, a scar on your arm. Is it, that oh, from yeah. that? Mm-hmm. Oh. So it, it just clipped me, honey. It just clipped me. Because if, if it hit me dead on, I would have died. There's no way around it. So it literally just smashed into my elbow. But it did so at such a force that I developed something called compartment syndrome, which is when uh, your your body experiences such a trauma that the oxygen to the muscles start shutting down. So when this hit me in my elbow, um, my forearm muscles started to shut down. So I just was able to stop using I stopped using my hand my hand just froze and then they had to release the pressure in the forearm which is what this is from and I came back with like probably like 60% function fuck I know how did you get hit were you just not looking I mean CP problems I mean I literally like wasn't thinking I was just Uh like anyways there's a bus I'll go catch it and then like ran into traffic and what kind of car was it that hit you I don't remember you don't know Mm -mm. so it did knock you to the ground uh huh and then you and then and then you're in the ambulance. And then I'm in the ambulance, and then they just said I had a sprained shoulder or something or arm or whatever. And I went home and I was like, "This is weird. I can't feel anything. This is not normal." And then I like went back and they're like, oh, "I'm just kidding. You have compartment syndrome. Oh god, go to surgery immediately." Just what you need. I know it was really hard. I didn't have um I didn't have a real hand. I was one handed basically for a year. And the hand that you have is the CP hand, kind yeah. of. Yeah. My good one. This is my like yeah. My this is the, my bad hand. That's not my good hand. Yeah. Shit. I mean it's fucked up. But like, can you type? Yeah. Like I well yeah I can of course like, like hunt and pack or type a little bit. I mean type, no I can't I can type fast but it's like not traditional. Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean and it's uh you know it's it's uh it's it was fucked up. It really was and it was really hard and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I felt like. This shouldn't have happened to me. I was like, I can't believe I'm acquiring another disability on top of the one that I already have. Where were you? Uh, San Francisco. Where in San Francisco? Uh, I was in the Sunset District. Okay. And uh, it was it was it was really hard because having CP is hard, but I didn't know anything different. 
but I did note something different. I did have totally like a fully functional left hand and now I don't. So it was really like felt like someone was taking something away from me. Is that when you started uh, like a uh, painkiller addiction? Yeah, so I got painkillers in the hospital and they were amazing. Oh my god, so good. Morphine <laughs> drip, like goodbye forever. And uh, and so I would, I knew I loved it. I mean, also before I got a bike car, I had taken Vicodin recreationally and I probably like two or three times. And I was like, this thing is the shit. Love it. And then I got hit by a car and then got tons of painkillers. And I mean, I'm a control freak. I'm a big control freak. So. For me to get addicted to something is a slow process because I'm dipping my feet in the pool and then I'm dip, I'm taking it out. Yeah. So for me to get fully hooked on drugs took, I'm not kidding you, probably like four years. And so I would just, what I would do is I would just kind of have, in college I would just like have random binges, like where I would go get a refill on a prescription and then just spend the weekend with my friends like high out of my mind, like loving life. And then I would just like run out and be like, okay, no more. And then when I was 24... I was writing for Thought Catalog, and um, I started hanging out with these, like, kind of party girls. And I was like, you know what? And, I, and I've been using it more and more, like, the, the pills. And I was just... Which what kind of pills? Um, I started with Vicodin, and then uh, went to Norco, and then basically ended up, like, in Percocet slash Roxy territory. What's Roxy? Roxy is called Roxyset, and it's basically, like, a very powerful painkiller. I mean, okay. it's like... Like Oxycontin level? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would call it Oxy-adjacent for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, so, uh, and so I was basically doing that towards the end, because you need to get higher and higher. On a daily basis? Um... No, and in, in my I had a schedule in my brain, of course, scheduling. Control, I mean, literally trying to control a drug addiction like Virgo is so addict. exhausting. Yeah, I'm a I'm an addict, but I'm a Virgo addict, which is a nightmare because you're trying to outsmart the addiction, which right. doesn't make sense. You can't do it. Right. But I mean, I would. I mean, like the thing is, like my life was never in shambles. Like emotionally, I was in shambles, but. I was never, I never, like, I, ne- my, I never lost my job. I never lost my friends. So, really, actually, it was more painful and hard work to do this. Because, like, if I just let myself completely go and was like, I'm going to just fuck my life up and be a complete mess, then I could have bottomed out quicker and gotten clean. But because I was so... Functional. I was so fucking functional. And I was doing so well in my career. And I was writing so much. And I was so inspired. And I was doing interviews all the time. And becoming this like little internet famous darling person like and then going on college speaking tours and it was like and then but in reality i was like a mess because like drugs to me like and also like i was never doing enough drugs to like overdose really because again i was like pretty smart about that and i never mixed it with alcohol ever Uh not out of like it was because i didn't like to dilute the high like i loved the opiate high so much that like having alcohol was like "Mm, yeah yeah, yeah. get out of here um but it was never I never was worried about dying. It was more like my my soul was dying. I mean, I know that sounds like I know that sounds dramatic, but like my mental state was just like a mess, and it was really hard to be like to just have your life revolve around drugs. It was exhausting. How did you kick? Well, it was a process. Um, the first, the major changing moment for me was when I went to do a speaking gig at McGill, and I was withdrawing from pills, and my my face was like tingly and crazy. And um, uh, this boy wouldn't hook up with me who was really hot. And I had not been with boys in a long time. That's the thing, too. Like, for me, I think being on pills was, like, a way to deal with the pain of, of lying about my disability, of course. Sure. And it was an excuse not to be with men who I was scared of and didn't think I deserved. Right. So it was like, well, I'm going to just, like, Percocet's my boyfriend now, so fuck <laughs> off. You know what I mean? I don't need guys. I have pills. And I, mean, I really would think that. I'd be like, I have my fucking pills. As long as I have my pills, I'm fine. 
And then no boy would ever talk to me anyway, so it's not like I was beating them away with a stick. <laughs> and so I went to, to McGill, though, and this really cute boy uh, picked me up, and we tried to hook up, and I couldn't get hard, which had never happened to me before. And I was so traumatized, and he was okay with it, and then he slept over, and then we, like, you know, spent the morning in that kind of, like... What were you on? I wasn't on anything. I was withdrawing. Oh, it was just a withdrawal. Yeah. Okay. But I was, like, you know, probably a mess emotionally and couldn't get hard and all that stuff. Sure. Um, and that morning after... He stayed in bed with me and he cuddled and I just, I realized how long it had been since I'd experienced any kind of intimacy whatsoever from anyone Yeah, and how shocked I was just by, you know, this tender one night stand that wasn't even one night stand because nothing happened. And I was like, okay, well, wow. Like my life has been such a lie. It's been such bullshit. Like I have not, I'm not out there like living my life i'm just like taking all these pills and just like being delusional and weird and like trying to numb yourself against any kind of pain or yeah of course and like so then i quit going to dealers and i quit going to my doctor feel good and then i pretty much didn't use i never used as much ever again but in new york i still did use sometimes but it was like much more manageable but it was like like, my, I would get it through a friend. I would, like, and that would be, like, my way of being, like, well, I'm just getting it through a friend. It's like, I, I just bum cigarettes from friends. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't buy my own pack. Yeah, totally. I'm not seeing my dealer anymore, but I'm definitely, like, still getting it through, like, a friend of mine. Like, whatever, whatever. And then I would, like, what would happen is, this was really bad. So, I would go on these weekend binges. So, I went into it during the week, but, like, but I would take, uh, I would take the same amount I did as a as an everyday user, but obviously my tolerance was so low because I wasn't doing it that much anymore. And so basically what I would do is I would take Roxy on Friday, spend Saturday vomiting, and then Sunday, like, recovering from that. Jesus. And it was just, like, a lost weekend. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was just like, I can't believe it. I can't believe that I'm just doing this over and over again and not fixing it. And then it just became kind of a slow dissolve. I mean, I was definitely using up until I left New York because I had my first anxiety attack while I was on Roxy and that like completely fucked with my brain. What do you mean? You got all, you had an anxiety, a I panic anxiety, attack? I never had one before. Never while you were on a, an opiate? On opiate, yeah. Oh. Not what you expect. It yeah. came out of nowhere. came out of nowhere. I was at a cafe writing a blog post for Thought Catalog and all of a sudden I was like, I feel like I'm dying. What the fuck is going on? And I thought I was overdosing from an opiate. And then I realized that I wasn't because I was like, then I would go to sleep. I wouldn't be like riled up. Was this pre-coming out of the disability closet? Yeah. This was before, right before I was supposed to leave New York in two weeks to move to LA. And I had this horrible anxiety attack. I had to move to, into my sister's apartment and like sleep on a blow up mattress and it was terrible. And then I moved to LA, slowly got my shit together, started working out, got my job on awkward and sober just, yeah, sober. Yeah. And it was just, but it was a slow, it wasn't an overnight thing. It was like a, it no, no, uh, no, like 12 step. No, no. Just, you just kicked it. No. Yeah. Cause I think that mine, I don't identify as an addict. I don't because I can still drink. I mean, I did all kinds of drugs before I did opiates and I was fine with either of them. Like Coke, people being like, let's buy more. I was like, let's not and say we did. Like what? I like don't right. understand. I didn't, I didn't understand the mentality of more and more and more. Right. I didn't understand it. Like, yeah. I know, I know when to stop drinking. I know when to do all that stuff. Like. There's never... My mind doesn't go to excess. Opiates, I loved the feeling, and it was just like... It was... Because I was on it for a year because of my actual physical pain, I I got physically addicted to it. So it was just sort of like that. But But it's kind of an anomaly. It really is to me. And so... And my addictions was like an anomaly. It was only... It only lasted for about a year. So it was sort of like this weird blip and i tried to define it so much i went to AA meetings i went to na meetings because i was like i'm an addict i'm an addict like i always needed to like 
identify something. Like, this is what it is. So Define it. it. In my main, yeah. And then I just realized that, like, sometimes you do insane things, and sometimes you have a lost year in your 20s where you do a lot of drugs, and then you stop, and that's it. Right. <laughs> and there's no, and, like, and also, you know, I think you, the coming out as disabled. Yes. Living in truth as oh opposed to living a lie. I mean, all I of a sudden, no desire to do drugs. Well, exactly. None. Exactly. There's I'm high off of my... <laughs> I'm high on my... Lol. <laughs> I'm high off the truth, yeah, Brad. Well. <laughs> high off the truth. But it's... There, it's true, though. I mean, it's true. There is a great burden to carrying a, a secret around. Yeah, absolutely. And I, now I just can't even... I mean, when I think about that person who did all that stuff, it just feels like a stranger. I couldn't even see it. Like, I just felt the urge to self-destruct always. And now I just don't anymore. And that's that. Well, I know. I, th- I think it's uh, it's awesome that you, uh, you know, wrote the piece and came out, wrote this book. I congratulate you on all the success you've had in TV. I wish you well. Thank you. With uh, your own show. I hope it gets on the air. Me too. I'll keep an eye out. And just thanks for coming over. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, folks. There you go. That's Ryan O'Connell. His book is called I'm Special. It's available now from Simon & Schuster. And uh, you can follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at Ryan Ocon. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own uh, official app, the Other People app. It's free. It's available wherever you get your apps. Go get the app. Download the app onto your device. When you do that, the most recent 50 episodes of this program will be there waiting for you free of charge. 50 episodes for free. And then if you want to sign up for premium, support the podcast, support the program, throw through, uh, you know, throw a few uh, dollars into the hat, you can sign up for premium right there within the app. So you get the app, the app is free, you get the most recent 50 episodes for free, and then you sign up for premium, you get access to everything, the full archives, uh, nearly 400 episodes at this point. If you have uh, anything you want to say to me, you can email me. The address is letters at other ppl.com. I don't know about this death. You know, it's a heavy responsibility. I'm just feeling it. It's also very hot in the garage. I think that's affecting me. It's affecting me psychologically. Baby is coming. I'm responsible for this baby. Got to figure out how to do two kids. Double the questions. Please remember that Longfellow published his first poem at age 13 and that Cervantes was 58 when part one of Don Quixote was published. He was also 68 when part two was published. That's it for now. Thanks again to Ryan O'Connell. Thanks to you guys for listening. Uh, Go get Ryan's book. I'm special. And uh, tune in next week for another episode of this program. I'll come back. I'll sit down in here. I'll sweat it out. I'll try to think of something to say. Or I'll be in uh, Cedar sinai holding my wife's leg. (laughs) 